It's good to see you all. Wash you, welcome. Is there anybody left on campus? <laughs> so, so good to have grad students, college students as well who love the Lord and um, know the significant place they play in culture and society, standing up for their beliefs and convictions and seeking to walk with the Lord and to be a part of a church. You know, when I was in college, uh, it was a, a vital, vitally important to me to be a part of a local church. It's so easy during those years to remove yourself from the church and to kind of do your own thing. And maybe you're a part of InterVarsity or Campus Crusade or something else. And they're all great. But to be plugged into a local body of believers is so valuable. So we commend you for that. It's, it's excellent to have you here. This has been a hard week for two of our families in particular here at West Hills. Um, we had to say goodbye to loved ones. Shelley Kissinger lost her mom early in the week. Candace Halpin's mom passed away in the middle of the week. And so we just corporately extend our sympathy and God's comfort to these two families. It's important to remember, the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. We're going to look at that this morning. God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. What a, what a great... Um, flowing of the comfort of God. And so make sure when you know specific situations like these where comfort is needed, be an agent of comfort, be an agent of mercy to those who are hurting. And then, as you may be aware, um, our president has declared for today to be a day of national prayer on behalf of the hurricane victims and the relief efforts that are going on in Texas and Louisiana. And so we want to pray for God's people as they minister to those who are in, in distress. Pray for the church in Houston and Rockport and all those small towns, uh, Lake Charles, because it's the saints of God who can bring a ministry of, of God's comfort and hope to those folks as well. So let's just pray right now together as the people of God for a minute. We would pray yet again, Lord, because you are the one that we turn to. We are weak, you are strong. We are finite, you are infinite. We are sinful, you are good, holy, compassionate, filled with mercy the God of all comfort. And so we would pray for those in our church family. We think of Candace and Shelley in particular and their families. We would collectively lift them up to you and pray that you would be their source of comfort and peace in a time of loss. And Lord, for others that I'm unaware of who need that today, that they would leave here knowing the great grace and peace and mercy and kindness and tenderness of their Heavenly Father. Likewise, Lord, we, we join 
with your people around the nation praying for those who are suffering because of this natural disaster. We would pray for the people of God that they would be agents of mercy, hope, help. We pray for all of the efforts, Lord. We pray for the families that have been totally, totally, their lives have been completely turned upside down. And that even in catastrophes such as this, you would bring your power and your grace to bear to draw people to yourself first and foremost, to help people to look to Christ. And... um, Lord, always make us agents of mercy to those in distress. We love you. We thank you. And now we place ourselves under the the teaching of your word, praying that the Spirit of God would be our instructor, our encourager, that he would help us. Pray in Christ's name. By the way, someone mentioned this morning... um, is there a channel by which if you feel led to give to hurricane relief? We have not designated one in particular as elders, but I will tell you that the one that my wife and I use and we use because of OCC is Samaritan's Purse. I believe, I believe it is, if not the best, one of the very best. You know your money is going to be used well. With they have teams down there right now that are working with the relief efforts, so... I would encourage you just to go online, Samaritan's Purse, and there will be relief boxes there where you can <clears throat> donate money as well. When you see the word God, what do you think of? What automatically comes to your mind? I don't, I'm not looking for answers here. I just want you to think about that. Um, we all have some concept about God deep inside of us. What are the factors that have contributed to your idea when you see that word? Where did your concept of God come from? Most importantly, is what you think about God correct? Kevin Van Hooser writes, to go wrong in one's doctrine of God is to go wrong everywhere. It's a pretty all-encompassing statement, but it is so true. If you go wrong in your doctrine, your understanding of God, you will go wrong everywhere. J.I. Packer, in his classic book, Knowing God, quotes from Charles Spurgeon, who, on January 7, 1855, opened his morning sermon this way. The proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. You see, friends, this whole book in its essence, is about God. 
It's not fundamentally about you. It's not fundamentally about me. It's about God. It's not a how-to manual for repairing your marriage. It's not a how-to manual for living the single life or being a parent. It isn't a prosperity manual. It's not about how to be a better person, a better you. It's not for achieving personal success or for learning good leadership principles in the workplace. It is not for proof-texting your political convictions or a hundred other things that it's been used for, a thousand other things over the centuries. Because it's not fundamentally about man. It's, in its essence, this book is about God. Now, as the primary players and recipients in God's story of redemption, it becomes about us, but only, only, only secondarily. And only to the degree that it tells us our story in relation to his story. We've got to keep that in perspective. Otherwise, we will turn this into something that it was never meant to be. Now, last week, we began a new series of messages titled The Born Identity. Catchy title, don't you think? Which is going to be an extended study of the tiny little letter of 1 Peter. Now, I gave you the assignment last week. Five chapters, 105 verses, 15 minutes to read it aloud. I said, read it once a day for 10 days. This is day seven. I won't make anybody feel guilty for having only read it once or twice or three times, Richard. That's good. <clears throat> but if you do take that seriously, you will start to get it into you. Remember I said, don't read the footnotes, don't read the cross-references. Read it as a letter. Just read it as a letter. Read it from, a, from the Apostle Peter coming to people like you and me. Churches scattered throughout what was then, what is now first or modern-day Turkey, first-century uh, Asia and Bithynia and Galatia and Cappadocia and Pontus. Read as a letter. Read it ten times. Get it into you, and then start looking for the key words and key themes, key, key ideas. Peter writes to remind Christians and to encourage them, but not with fluff. It's easy to try to Make people feel good with fluff, with, with feel-good goo. It's easy to make people feel good with psychobabble. That's not Peter's attempt. Peter wants to encourage Christians with truth, God's truth, rock-solid truth. Truth, first and foremost, about God, as we're going to see in the opening verses, Verses 3 through 5. And then as a result, truth about your new born-again identity in Jesus Christ. You need to know who you are as you go through life. You need to, be, you need to clearly understand who you are in relation to God. That's the most important thing. Otherwise, you will lose your internal compass... Your identity will have no anchor. You'll have no footings. And then what's going to happen? Life circumstances are going to mess you up. The world's ideas will mess you up. People will mess you up. The media will mess you up. Your successes will inflate you and your failures will defeat you. And your view of God and who you are in relation to God will fluctuate with each passing day. And so we go to 1 Peter 
wanting to know and needing to know God and who we are because of him and what he has done. Amen? Now, this morning we're in verses 3 through 5. Last week we just simply got through the opening introductory verses. We're not going to get a whole lot further this morning. And so as you're able, please stand to honor the reading of God's word. Let's read it in unison. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Please be seated. Three verses, packed to the full. It begins with blessing God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to bless God? I mean, we have this cultural thing of blessing someone when they sneeze, which is actually a practice that arose out of superstition, that when a person sneezed, they were exposing themselves to evil spirits potentially coming into their body. I don't know if you knew that. And so the blessing was seen as a way of protecting a person from that happening. Now, I'm all for blessing people, but it's kind of interesting that we don't say, God bless you, when someone coughs or clears their throat or burps or yawns. I'm just saying but I digress. We associate the word blessing with God blessing us, mostly. For example, Numbers chapter 6, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's a blessing, the blessing of God upon the people of God. We need that. But what does it mean for Peter to bless God? Well, Peter is adoring God. Peter is praising God. Peter is worshiping God. We sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. That's what Peter's doing here. Peter is saying, bless God from whom all blessings that have come into your life this week have flowed. Bless him. Honor him. Adore him. Now, Peter's distinguishing the God whom he is blessing from any and other false gods. He isn't blessing the gods of the Greeks. He isn't blessing the gods of the Romans. He isn't blessing any pagan deities or pantheons of gods and goddesses. No, specifically, he is blessing the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Jews had blessed God for centuries as their creator, their redeemer, Genesis 14, blessed be God most high. Genesis 24, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham. Bless him. Exodus 18, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians. There's the Redeemer. And there are even a few scattered references to blessing God and honoring God as Father in the Old Testament. You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation, Psalm 89. 
The prophet Isaiah prayed, You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer. From of old is your name. But then you get to the New Testament, and Peter, along with the other New Testament writers, gives us the additional knowledge of God that he is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is where God's fatherhood begins. See, believe it or not, the fatherhood of God does not begin with us. The fatherhood of God begins in his relation to the Son. In fact, before the word Father is mentioned in your New Testament, you hear the Father's voice coming from heaven at Jesus' baptism. This is my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. There's the fatherhood of God. Shortly after that, Jesus taught his disciples, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so Jesus called God our Father. God the Father is the Father of Jesus and the Father of us. And of course, that's how Jesus taught his disciples to pray, as Will covered so well in his sermons on the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven. But what we realize is that the fatherhood of God did not begin with him becoming our father, as I said a minute ago. Rather, it has always been his essence in relation to his son. And so the fatherhood of God that is ours, think about this, the fatherhood of God that is ours is but an overflow of the glory of God as the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is who God has been throughout all eternity. That is where love and relationship was occurring before God created anything. And so we come into the blessings of knowing and having God as our Father through a relationship with the Son, Jesus. Indeed, friends, that is the only way we can come to know God as our Father. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And then later he would say to Philip, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to my Father, the Father, except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So in blessing the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Peter is at the same time proclaiming the deity of Jesus. Jesus and the Father are one. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Very simply, Lord, the sovereign ruler of the universe, Jesus, his personal name, the same as Joshua and Hosea in the Old Testament, meaning God saves, God is salvation. Jesus, the incarnate Son of God who has taken on flesh, our Lord Jesus Christ, his title, King, Messiah. And then Peter makes it so personal. Blessed be the God and Father of what? Our, our Lord Jesus Christ. He's ours. He has been given to us by the Father. For God the Father so loved the world that he gave to us his only Son. 
God the Father so loved the world that he gave to us his Son. Now, push pause for just a minute. I've given you a lot of stuff right there. This is really important, at least it is to me. Right here at the very beginning, I want for you to feel what Peter was feeling when he wrote those words. See, this is not meant to be a cold theological discourse on God and Jesus. This isn't a college lecture or a theological dissertation that is void of passion and emotion, visceral feeling going on inside of the apostle. Now, I feel it coming from the pen of Peter filled with passion, filled with affection. Peter writes from a heart that's full. Peter writes from a heart that has been captivated and captured by the mercy and grace of God in so many ways over his life. Now he's trying to capture the essence of this transformation in his life that has developed over the years and pass it on to his readers. Brothers and sisters, you want your faith to stir you as it lives within you, as it stirred the apostles. And I would say if it doesn't, there is something wrong, something wrong. I fear that there's considerable lukewarm cultural Christianity in lives of many professing Christians today. We don't feel the depth and the, the passion and the affection of our faith. And I believe it is in large part due to the fact that we, we can have it in our head, we can have it in our hands, we can hold on to it, we can believe it, we can jot it down and make notes on it and take sermon outlines. But if it doesn't burn within us the way it should, I, I, it needs to be addressed. Jesus gave the warning to the church in Revelation. You are lukewarm. You are lukewarm. Where is the passion? Where is the burn? Where is the heart of fire? I think of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus that unknowingly met Jesus after his resurrection. They didn't know it was him. But then he opened the scriptures to them. And later they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us? This is what I feel when I read Peter and Paul, and the other authors of Scripture. You do not want to be a Christian with a cold heart. You want to be a Christian with a heart that is warmed regularly by the glory of God burning inside of you. Then he begins by telling us what it is in God that motivates him to do what he does. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is it that's going to drive this God motivate him to do what he does in the rest of verses 3, 4, and 5. And Peter tells us the driving force in the heart of God is his mercy. He is moved and motivated by his mercy. Verse 3, according to his great mercy. See, God's mercy is what motivates him. God's mercy is what moves him in the direction of rebel sinners such as you and me with the purpose of saving and delivering us from our distress. What moves this great God? 
Have you ever watched something massive and wonder what is it that gets it to move at all? You know, a huge ocean-going freighter or a massive aircraft carrier or one of the space shuttles blasting its way into space and thought about what is required to move such an enormous tonnage in a certain direction. I mean, the amount of power and thrust that must be generated just to get something so massive to move even an inch. It's hard to comprehend. And so what is it that moves the heart of a God so massive that he holds the universe in the palm of his hand? What is it that moves a God so massive that even in our little tiny solar system he can eclipse the brightness of the sun with the puniness of our moon? And why would such a God be moved at all toward people like me and you? Peter tells us very simply, it is according to his great mercy that he does everything that he's going to tell us in these verses. See, mercy is innate in the being of God. He does not have to generate it. He does not have to go looking for it. He does not, it does not rise with a mood of benevolence and fall with a mood of indifference. God's mercy does not fluctuate because God does not change. His mercy is constant because it is his nature to be merciful. And so everything Peter is going to tell us in these opening verses is the result of God being full of mercy. Well, Gary, what exactly is the mercy of God? Well, we need to differentiate a bit. Don't slice and dice them too closely, but there is a differentiation between mercy and grace. Both his mercy and grace are aspects of God's goodness. We find characteristics of God's nature often mentioned together. For example, when God declared his name to Moses, he proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. There's God's goodness all wrapped up into a beautiful package. King David makes the same declaration in Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So you got the two together, mercy and grace. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology differentiates them from each other this way. God's mercy means God's goodness toward those in misery and distress. God's grace means God's goodness toward those who deserve only punishment. And so you could say that while mercy addresses my groaning, grace addresses my guilt. As a loving parent, you extend mercy and grace to your children all the time, don't you? Grace brings forgiveness to the child that has done wrong. Mercy brings tenderness to the child that is hurt. It was a year ago, this past summer, when our son Jesse fell and broke his arm up in Michigan. Amazingly, you'll probably be amazed, the picture that you see of him and me walking out towards the bluffs of Lake Michigan is about 15 minutes after he had broken his arm, and we only thought that he had scraped his knee. 
and he walked out to the lake, and the longer we walked, the bigger his arm got. But we still, Aaron and Reed and Jenny and I can still hear him falling and the crack, again, thinking his knee had hit the root, and it was his arm that hit the root, and he groaned, he groaned, and we all came running to Jesse. That's what mercy does. That's what mercy does. Mercy comes running to misery. Mercy is when you hear the cry of your small child coming from the backyard or their bedroom, and they've had a nightmare. Mercy is when you hear the downcast tone in their voice over the phone, and you reach across the miles with comfort. Mercy is moving toward people in misery and distress. You get that? That's God. Now, in dealing with mankind in our misery, in the misery of our fallen condition, in our sin and rebellion and the ravaging effects of that sin in so many areas of our lives, wouldn't you agree with me? Sin has ravaged us. And as a result, we experience all kinds of pieces of misery, distress, pain, suffering. In the midst of all that, it is the pure and perfect goodness of both God's mercy and God's grace that moves him toward us in our groaning and in our guilt. Peter says, it is according to, because of, as a result of, corresponding to, in proportion to his great mercy that he does what he does. He sees you and me in our miserable condition due to our bondage to sin, due to our own foolish and wayward hearts, due to the sins of others against us, due to living in a fallen world where the prince of the power of the air is actively pursuing and prowling about, seeking to devour and destroy. And it is with eyes of compassion and ears of mercy that our Heavenly Father sees and hears us. Just as he saw the, Israel, the misery of the Israelites and heard their cries for help in bondage in Egypt, they groaned because of their slavery, Exodus 2. They cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery did what? Came up to God's ears. And then the Lord said, Exodus 3, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I have come down. Amazing. What is it that moved the heart of the God of the universe to come down? It was his mercy. Your psalm, the psalms in your Bible, record more references to mercy than any other book in your Bible. David was perpetually crying out for God's mercy. Psalm 25, remember your mercy, O Lord, your steadfast love. Psalm 28, blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. Psalm 51, when he has sinned so grievously. Psalm 51 begins, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Be merciful to me in my misery. See, it's one thing for you to be physically in misery. It's another thing for you to be spiritually in misery. 
In the Gospels, you've got people in distress crying out to Jesus all the time. Matthew 9, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. They were not asking that point, friends, for grace. They were asking for mercy. Canaanite woman, Matthew 15, from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. She was asking for mercy. Now, in my thinking, as finite as it is, and as I, but as I see how I think it gets worked out in the Bible, it seems to me as if mercy often paves the way for grace. Mercy would seem to precede grace many, many times in that it introduces the person who is in misery to the heart of a God who would want to cover our sins and who demonstrated his love in sending his beloved son. Mercy paves the way for grace. In Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul refers to the riches of God's mercy. God who is rich in mercy. The same in Titus 3. Now, I parked here perhaps longer than I normally would have because I really believe that God's people need, need, need to know and absorb and marinate in and live in the fullness of the mercy of our Heavenly Father. And, and get rid of any, any image of God that you've brought into your life that doesn't have that at its core. Otherwise, you will always be beating up on yourself You'll always feel as if God is watching your every move, waiting for you to make a mistake. You'll always be critical of yourself and probably of other people. See, it is as we, here's the deal, it is as we live with the mercy of God that we will in turn become merciful ourselves. I mean, here at West Hills, we see mercy expressed so many ways. I mean, the CIA, Jackie, and team coming alongside people in need, Kairos outside ministering to spouses and families of those who are incarcerated, Bridge of Hope, folks from our church serving those in the inner city, Operation Christmas Child bringing gifts of mercy. That's what they are. They are gifts of tenderness that end up bringing the gospel of grace, but it's a gift of tenderness to children around the world, and, and, and lots of public, non-public expressions. There's lots of mercy in this church. And that will, that will increase as we experience and rest in and enjoy and delight in the mercy of our Heavenly Father. Amen? Now, what is God's mercy motivated him to do? Well, it's caused him to bring about the reality of new birth. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. God is the first and final cause behind new birth, Peter says. See, we like to know what causes things to happen, don't we? What caused that to happen? What caused that flat tire? What caused you to flunk out of college in your freshman year? Anybody want to raise their hand on that one? What caused you to get lung cancer? What caused your girlfriend to break up with you? And, and with some simple things, there are simple answers. Uh, the flat tire, you drove over a nail. Flunking out of college, too much partying, not going to class. 
lung cancer, you've smoked two packs of cigarettes a day for years. Your girlfriend breaking up with you, you were a jerk. See, some things are pretty simple. <clears throat> but some things are complex to know the cause. What's the cause? I'm reading a book right now titled The Strange Death of Europe, written by a Brit who is trying to analyze various factors that have been at work in Europe, especially in the last 20 to 30 years, that essentially have brought about a seismic shift in the contour of the continent, culturally, politically, economically, religiously, every other way. It's a fascinating read, but it's a, it's a, it's a complex study of the causes that have made Europe totally different than what it used to be even 30 years ago. Now, here's the big one for us this morning. What causes a person to be born again? What's the cause? That's huge. What causes a person who is spiritually dead to be made spiritually alive? What causes a person who is one day a stiff-necked rebel of God to become a much-loved child of God? What causes new birth? A whole new beginning in a person's life to occur. And by the way, friends, that happens in lots of ways. God has this wonderful way of moving. You know, Jesus says it's like the Holy Spirit moves and does his own thing in different ways. And so don't, don't package yourself into, well, I needed to have experienced new birth in this particular definition. No, God is bigger than that. But what happens? What happens in a person's life when you're born again? Peter says it's God. Verse 3, he has caused us to be born again. He is the sole cause behind the activity of spiritual regeneration. God's spirit is the wind of new birth, John 3. It blows where it wishes. You hear its sound. You see its effect in the bending of the trees. You feel it brush across your face. But you're unaware of where it came from, and you're unaware of where it's going next. Jesus says that's how the Spirit works and moves in bringing about new birth. It's marvelous. He gets all the glory for that. It's God's doing. John MacArthur writes, The new birth is a work solely of the Holy Spirit. Sinners do not cooperate in their spiritual birth any more than infants cooperate in their natural births. You see, when a child is brought into this world, is there a collective plan between the parents-to-be and the male sperm and the female egg at the point of conception as to how all of this is going to come down? Does the new human life that is forming in the womb have an active role? It's not even conscious of what exactly is happening. And so the analogy of physical birth to spiritual birth is good on so many fronts. Think about it. It is initiated by someone other than the beneficiary of the new life. It is brought about solely through a power outside of itself. It is the beginning of a new life that did not previously exist. It is entering into a whole new world. It is looking forward to the day when you will meet those who have given you life. It's becoming part of a family. And Peter says God spiritually causes it all to happen. Praise God for the miracle of physical birth. Praise him even more for the miracle of spiritual birth. Blessed be. Do you see, do you see why maybe our reaction isn't quite as, as 
intense as Peter's when he writes, Blessed be God, oh, blessed be God, who by his great mercy has caused us to be born again. If you think it's mostly about you and what you did, you rob God of the blessing. You say, well, how has God accomplished this? By what power does new birth take place? By the very same power that was demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Friends, do you see why new birth cannot be this quiet endeavor between me and God? Think about it. If your new birth, you've got to keep thinking with me, if your new birth required the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, what did you have to bring to the table? What power did you bring? It'd be like, it'd be like putting out a call for AAA to come to your rescue because your battery's dead and your car won't start and you're stranded alongside the road and the guy pulls up in his truck, gets out and asks, so what's your contribution to this? And you say, my contribution? I got nothing. And he says, well, surely you can do something to contribute at least a little extra power to what I brought here in the truck. I mean, do you have any spare 9-volt batteries in the glove compartment? Maybe, maybe, no, not even that. Maybe you can rub a couple sticks together and generate some heat. Nope, I got nothing. It's all you. It's all you. You see, if spiritual birth is going to occur, it will require a type and level of power beyond anything we know of in and of ourselves. Greater power than it takes to send a rocket into space. Greater power than to bring about a solar eclipse. It takes the power of the resurrection, the power to take someone who is 100% dead, has been dead for three days, and make them 100% alive. He has caused us, our Father of mercy, has caused us to be born again through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And so that's what Paul prayed for the Ephesians to be able to know in their lives. Ephesians 1, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power that he worked in Christ toward us who believe? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. If you've been born again, if you've been born again, it is an incredible display of the power of God. I was driving home last night from down on Manchester Road, had the radio tuned to some Christian music. A song came on that was talking about new birth. And I found my mind going back to when I believe I was born again. I was 18 years old. And the theater, I don't know, I can't remember how many people were in the theater when this movie was shown where the gospel was presented. And I had to go for it. I was compelled. And it was like there was this life force happening inside of me. I couldn't deny it. I was born. I was born. And the Spirit of God moved like a wind through the theater. There were like, I don't know, two, three, four of us that night who went forward and 
said, yes, yes, God of all mercy, Father of all mercy, I need your mercy, I need your grace. If you've been born again, be amazed. Be thrilled. Don't make it some small thing. It is huge. Think on it often. Celebrate it. Delight in it. Bless God for for your new birth. Then Peter tells us what it is that we've been born into. The clock is ticking way too fast. Let me just look at my notes here and see how we're doing. Oh, that's the first page. I don't need that one anymore. <laughs> Peter tells us what it is that we've been born into. A living hope. He is the only source of true and lasting hope, friends. We're going to be looking at hope more in future messages, so we won't say a lot on it here. But a couple minutes... But this morning, just keep in mind, keep in mind what your condition was and would be apart from knowing Jesus. Keep in mind the current status of those whom you love today who do not know the Lord. Ephesians 2, 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ the Son, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, Strangers to the covenants of promise, next three words, having no hope and without God in the world. I don't know about you, but that phrase haunts me when I think about loved ones who don't know Jesus. Having how much hope? None. Say, well, Gary, what's the hope that Peter's referring to here? This isn't the hope that you have, that you won't have rain on the day of your outdoor wedding or you get a year on bonus or you hope you get a good price when you sell your house or hope for a good report from the doctor. No, those are all wishes. We wish all the time. It's not the same as biblical hope. The hope that the Bible talks about is the rock-solid assurance that what God has declared to happen will happen even though we can't see it from where we stand in space and time today. That's hope. Because God has already set it in place. Romans 8, Paul says this about hope. Hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? No one. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And so hope causes us to wait with patience. For that which we cannot see, because God has already said it's going to happen. And again, I ask the question, what do people do who have no true, lasting hope? Well, they're just forced to come up with something to hold on to. They're forced to develop some type of belief system, some type of ideology, something that allows them to move through life to control the challenges, the downturns, the disappointments, the episodes of despair, the feelings of emptiness and meaninglessness and the fear of the unknown and ultimately their confrontation with death. They've got to come up with something But notice what Peter refers to this as. He has brought us into a living hope. It's not a dead hope. 
It's not a lifeless hope. A living hope is a hope that lives, breathes within you because you have a living Savior who lives within you, and he brings his hope to you. Christian hope is this whole new dimension to life that's unknown apart from knowing Jesus. Number four, he is the keeper and bestower of our future inheritance. Into an inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, an inheritance is the wealth that you receive from someone else, right? Some of you have received inheritances. Some of you maybe are hoping you'll receive an inheritance someday. The New Testament is clear that the beloved children of God receive an inheritance. Colossians 1, Hebrews 9, Romans 8. And Peter characterizes our inheritance with some strong qualifiers. It is imperishable, indestructible. It's undefiled, unstained, no flaws. It is unfading. It's not a mirage. It's going to disappear. It's not wilting flowers. It's not going to wilt. And where is it kept? It's kept in heaven. It's waiting for you at the will call window when you arrive in heaven to be given to those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. You wouldn't want it to be kept anyplace else, would you? I wouldn't want my inheritance to be kept in a bank vault or a safe deposit box. No, it's kept in heaven. And then you stop and you say, did God leave anything out? Did God forget about anything? Beginning to end. But then until that day comes, this is last, my last point, until that day comes when we receive our inheritance, what's our situation now? Peter tells us, my God is my guardian. He is the guardian of all who belong to him. Verse 5, who, that's many of us in this room who know Jesus, who by God's power are, present tense, being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So the child of God is guarded by the Father through the means of your faith in his Son, the Lord Jesus. This is so important. You see, your thinking, if your thinking is at all like my thinking, it might run something like this. Lord, it is a wonderful thing to know that you are guarding my inheritance, none of which I even remotely deserve. But Lord, if I'm honest, my bigger concern in the here and now is what about me? Are you guarding me? Because I am a fallen, sinful, stubborn man who keeps stumbling, keeps making mistakes. I do not love you as I should. I do not love others as I should. I take my eyes off of you. I wander aimlessly. My thoughts are unclean. My motives are impure. My words are tainted with pride and with poison. My actions never rise up to my good intentions. Lord, until that day when I received the great inheritance as one of your beloved children, what about me now? And the father replies, my little one, I guard you. I guard you. 
I will never leave you nor forsake you. That which I have begun in you, I will bring to completion. And there is nothing, nothing, not even you, that can, can or ever will separate you from my love. I will guard you till that day because you are mine. Now, I would just simply say, if that is all that Peter had tweeted, if that was the extent of his letter, it would be enough to keep me so full for so long. But there's more coming. Praise God. Let's pray together. Then we're going to have a closing song. Would you take just a minute, please? Brothers and sisters in Christ, glory in God. Bless God. Bless Him. Adore Him in your hearts. Worship him with a heart that burns. With such wonderful truths, life-changing, heart-transforming, new birth-giving truths. What a great, great God. And my friends, if there are any here this morning who have yet to be introduced to this great God, I introduce you to him today. This could be your day. Holy Spirit moves like the wind, bringing new life where there is spiritual death, drawing near to those who have wandered so far away. Would you give your life to Christ? To all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gives the right to become a beloved child of God. Receive him. Trust him. Say yes. Yes, Lord Jesus. Yes, Father. I believe in your son. I need your son. I need your mercy for my misery. I need your grace for my guilt. I need for this day to be my new birthday.
Merciful Father, we praise and thank you. Thank you for causing us to be born again through the resurrection of your Son, the Lord Jesus, from the dead. Thank you that you guard us. Thank you that you have an inheritance waiting for us, the greatest inheritance of all being yourself. May you be our inheritance. We give you thanks and praise in the wonderful, wonderful name of Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior.